Today we get to hear from Isaiah 55, 1-7. through 7. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the evil man His thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and He will have mercy on him. And to our God, for He will freely pardon. Thanks, Forrest. Good morning. I was speaking with a friend recently whose daughter had been applying to colleges. So she was going through that rigorous task of filling out an application, getting references, writing essays, you know, jumping through all the hoops that you have to to get ready to apply to college. And, and then you send it in and you hope you will get accepted. And then once you are accepted to a good college, you have to go to class <laughs> and do all the work <laughs> and keep your grades up and, of course, pay a lot of tuition <laughs> if you hope to stay in school and eventually get a degree. Some of you are in the midst of this. Some of you are maybe applying for college or you have children who are waiting to hear back from schools, uh, maybe grandchildren, but access to a good college takes this rigorous process. I was thinking about that in terms of our relationship with God, and it strikes me that many of us approach God in a similar way. We think seeking God takes filling out an application, essentially. We, we have to fulfill certain requirements before we can come into his presence. We have to clean up our lives, or at least, if nothing else, make sure we're all confessed up and Make sure we feel bad enough about our sin for long enough so that we feel like now we're somehow have earned our way into his presence. We somehow feel like we need to pay our dues. Then when we come to him, we tentatively approach him. Always a bit unsure of what he really thinks about us. Afraid what kind of grade we might get. Because deep down we know we're kind of a mess and we're not really pulling on life very well. So we kind of wonder how much God really accepts us for who we are. A couple of weeks ago in Isaiah 53, we saw that amazing passage where it says, Jesus, the servant of the Lord, the Lamb of God, bore our sorrows, our griefs, our iniquities, 
our rebellion. He bore all that on the cross like a lamb being led to slaughter. He gave up his life for us so that we wouldn't have to die that death. We wouldn't have to be punished. And so there would be free access to the very presence of God himself. In Isaiah 54, then last week, we saw how if that's true, if he's made the way wide open, then we can enjoy our status as his beloved now. In our passage today, in Isaiah 55, Isaiah tells Israel and us what it looks like to seek the Lord. If if truly the way is wide open into his presence, the veil has been torn, God has opened the door for us to come. How then does he want us to approach him? How should we seek the Lord? Pray with me. Lord, if we're honest, we admit sometimes we're unsure about coming to you. We aren't sure how we should come. But thank you for your word and this wonderful passage in Isaiah 55 that helps us understand how to come to you, how you want us to come and what we should bring in terms of uh, entering your presence and having free access to you. So may you use your word today by the power of your spirit to help us know how to seek you more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it helps us to set the context. Imagine what it would be like to be an Israelite in Isaiah's day. He's writing around 700 B.C., And he's helping us understand what it means to seek the Lord. But think about for an Israelite of the day, the temple is standing in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. And if you wanted to seek the Lord, if you had a heart to know him, the place you had to go is the temple. You would never come without bringing an offering. You had to bring a bull, a lamb, birds if you were poor, whatever it might be, grain offering, wine offering. And you would bring your offering so that you could come to him. But when you actually came to the temple, there were four courts. The outer court was the court of Gentiles. If you were a non-Jew, that's as far as you could come towards God's presence. Next was the court of women. If you were female, that's as close as you could get. Then the third court was the court of Israel or the court of the men. The men could go that far, but no further. Then the inner court was the court that was only for the Levites and priests. You had to be born into that tribe and be given a certain task if you were going to enter the inner court. But to enter the Holy of Holies, you had to be the high priest. And the high priest only went into the Holy of Holies one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And when he went in there, they would tie a rope to his foot just in case he offended God and got struck down dead. They could at least pull out his dead body without having to go in after him. This holy, all-consuming God was not very accessible, was he? (laughs) So this is the context that Isaiah is writing in when he begins to say, you can have free access to him. You can come into his presence. Believe me, this was mind-blowing for the Israelites because you could only get so close to God. The constant message that they heard was essentially, you are not good enough to approach Yahweh, the true God. You're not good enough to approach Yahweh, the true God. 
But what we've seen in these last two chapters is that because of Jesus' death, the way is thrown wide open. When he went to the cross, God's arms were opened wide. And access was given, and he embraces us into his presence. No application is necessary. You don't have to bring tuition. You don't have to write an essay. But we can come right into his presence. But there are some guidelines he gives us in this chapter to help us understand how he wants us to come. And first he says, come thirsty. Come thirsty. Let me read those couple first two verses again because I think they're very telling. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come. Do you think God wants us to come? Just wondering. I noticed that word. (laughs) Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. I think what he's saying is that the first thing you have to do if you're going to come into his presence is you have to come thirsty. You have to know that you are thirsty. You have to be unsatisfied with life here. And realize what you're really thirsty for is God himself. As we were talking about this passage in our staff meeting this week, one of the staff said, yeah, if you just ate a terrible fast food meal and then you walk into a place where there's a great feast, you're just not going to be hungry and you're not going to enjoy it. We come to God too often. We've we've stuffed ourselves with fast food. We think somehow that will satisfy us, but it won't. As Blaise Pascal has been attributed to have said, we all have a God-shaped vacuum. Actually, he didn't say that. (laughs) But here's what he did say along those lines. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Notice what he says, that in every one of us is an infinite abyss that can only be filled by God himself. This grace that's offered, notice it says, bring no money. It's totally free. But we end up, he says, spending our money and laboring to fill this infinite abyss with all kinds of other things that can never satisfy us. What are some of these things? Well, One of the common things in our culture is entertainment, right? You know how we tend to, when we start feeling this a little bit of thirst, a little bit of ache in our soul, a little bit of that infinite abyss, and we begin to feel it, we immediately go somehow entertain ourselves with TV or social media or sports or whatever because we don't want to face that thirst in our soul, or we fill it with other distractions or material goods, listening to music, money, technology, social media, health, 
diets, looks, success, career, drugs, financial security. We could elaborate on all of these and many other things that we use to try to somehow quench our thirst so we don't feel it anymore. So we spend all we have on these things, our time, our energy, and yet we don't feel thirsty because of them, and yet they don't quench our thirst. So we keep going from thing to thing to thing. Pride keeps us from admitting we're thirsty as well. We, we don't want to have to come to God and admit, I can't handle life and I, I'm dying inside. I, I can't fill this infinite abyss in my own soul. In The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis, there's a wonderful little description, conversation that goes on between Aslan, the Jesus figure, and Jill. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. In the story, there's a beautiful stream, but the lion's in between Jill and the stream. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. (laughs) And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. (laughs) Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. We have an infinite abyss of thirst. We're built for God alone. And yet sometimes we're afraid to come or too proud to come. And yet Jesus stands up on the feast, the last day of the great feast in John chapter 7, verse 37. It says, is anybody thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow rivers of living water. Not only will you be quenched, but you, you will become a vessel for quenching others who are thirsty as well. Verse 2 is beautiful in, in that it says, not only do you come to him for drinking, but listen to what you get. You get to eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. He says, there's a feast. And if you're willing to come to him to fill your thirst, you get so much more. You get a satisfaction that goes deeper, far deeper into your soul. So if we are going to approach God, the first thing we have to do is, is, is begin to let go of some of these distractions and admit, I, I am thirsty and the world is not satisfying my thirst. I need you, God. We need to come thirsty. Secondly, we need to come listening. Come listening. At the end of verse 2, he says, Listen diligently to me, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Think for a minute about how we usually come to God. 
How do you usually come to God? Talking, right? <laughs> God, okay, it's time for my prayer time. <clears throat> okay. All right, God, well, there's, here's these five things I want you to do, and this person's sick, and I'm having a little trouble with this, and I need help with this. And by the way, you're not doing a very good job with this, God, but, you know, I, and amen. Okay, I'm done with that. But what he wants us to do is learn to listen, to come to him and really hear from him. And in our modern culture, we are terrible at this. We're not really good at listening to one another. And we're certainly not good at listening to God. So he says, verse 3, incline your ear. This means literally stretch out your ear. My wife, Jeannie, knows that if she's going to say something to me that she actually wants me to hear, she has to get my attention. You know, if I'm distracted with something else, I'm reading or I'm doing something else, focused on something else, she knows I'm just not going to hear it. She has to look at me, eye to contact, you know, so that actually, you know, we can communicate and I'll hear what she has to say. I know I'm the only man that has that problem. <laughs> but that's, I think, what he's getting at here. We have to stretch out our ear. We have to incline ourselves and really listen to what God has to say to us. The next word he uses, it says, translated here or listen, is a word that's Shema. You may have heard of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Shema, it's called, because the first word is here. But in Hebrew, that word always carries with it an emphasis, not just hearing, but obeying. You see, to really hear, to listen, doesn't mean, oh, now I understand what you think. I disagree, I would never do it, but hey, I hear. <laughs> no, it carries with it the idea of you hear and you seek to live it out. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, so love the Lord your God with all your heart. You see, when you listen to God, it comes with an expectation that he will tell us what to do and that you'll want to carry it out. And God wants us to learn to be quiet before him and listen to him. And none of us are really good at that. God is not into texting, by the way. You know, here, we shoot a thought at him and then, you know, kind of go our own way. He wants a real conversation with us. So how do we listen to God? How do we do that? Well, first of all, we have to stop talking. <laughs> how much time do you spend before God not talking, but actually listening to him? You have to quiet yourself so you can hear. You have to focus on him. How do we listen to him? How do we hear from him? Well, the word of God is the primary way, but it's how you approach the word. Do you just read through it? And I, I read through my devotional passage, check it off, done with that. Or do you say, Lord, I really want you to speak to me through this. I'm going to take my time and just say, Lord, how are you? What are you trying to tell me? And focus on a word or a thought and ask God to speak to you through his word, what he wants to speak to you at that point. I think this is why, for our modern age, the classic spiritual disciplines are so important. Now, in our, our world, 
sometimes we get a little nervous when we hear that. Classical spiritual disciplines, that's liturgical. That's a different tradition. That could be new age. No, the classical spiritual disciplines are primarily a way to get us to slow down and listen to God. So to come with Bible reading and meditation where you take your time and ask God to speak to you through the word, where you get away and have solitude, where it's just you and God and you're just quiet before him and you don't have to read or do anything, where you spend time with him in silence. Could be fasting and there's many spiritual disciplines, but the point is they're made to help us slow down and listen to God. This was the best part of my sabbatical I had in the fall where I had three months to get away. And, and what I did, what I chose to do was not spend much time with people, but I spent a lot of time with God and a lot of time just quiet before him. I didn't feel like I had to read a lot or do a lot, but I was quiet before him. And I, I understand it's hard because you get distracted, right? Your thoughts go all kinds of directions, but just say, oh, I got distracted. I'm coming back to you, Lord. And, and we learn to be quiet and to listen and to hear from him. One of the phrases that stuck with me from my sabbatical is, if you make room for God, he will fill it. When we're so busy with entertainment and all these things that are trying to fill this infinite abyss in our soul, there's no room for God. But if we make room and we make space in our lives and we just open our hearts to him, he will fill it. And here's what's exciting. Notice in these verses what he will communicate to us if we're listening. It says, I will make an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Who is David? Well, David was the king, but the promises of David were passed on to his descendants and ultimately to Messiah, to Jesus. And it's talking about Jesus now in verse 4. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. You see, when you be quiet before the Lord and you begin to listen, he communicates his covenant of love to you. And you begin to understand the depths of his love for you in a way you cannot any other way. And he begins to communicate Jesus to you and who Jesus really is to you and how he's a witness to your soul and how he's a leader and a commander to your life. And you begin to listen to him and begin to respond to him and learn to obey him. But see, you never go really deep in knowing Jesus, really deep in knowing God's love for you, unless you learn to listen. And then verse 5 says something amazing. The nations will run to you. <laughs> That's the impact we have. There's something about someone who has really spent time with God and who has listened to God that is attractive to the world, where they want that. Because they're so frantic and anxious. What a wonderful gift. Because they'll see that you have what they long for. So come thirsty to God. <laughs> come listening. Third, come repentant. Verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him. While he is near, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Verse 6 says something really interesting. Call on the Lord while he is 
near. Seek him while he may be found. What does this mean? It suggests that there is a period of time where he's accessible and then he's not. Does that mean God shuts the door in our face? I don't really think so. I think the door is wide open. But I think what he's saying is seek the Lord while your heart is still open. Because eventually, if you don't come in a way that says, God, I want to come to you and I want you to deal with my wickedness, deal with my rebellious heart, I want you to change me. After a while, sin begins to harden us. And it isn't that God moves away from us. It's that we move away from God. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Come to him now and come in a repentant way, it says. Come being willing to forsake your wickedness, forsake your sinfulness, your unrighteousness. It doesn't mean you come together. It means you realize you're not together (laughs) and you need God's forgiveness and you need his love and his care for you. We feel unworthy to come to the Lord. So we wait too often and we hold back until we somehow feel worthy. That is not how God wants us to come. It's in our unworthiness that he says, come, come and receive forgiveness. Come and receive compassion. Bring your wickedness, bring your unrighteousness, and you'll find free pardon and mercy. But we do need to be willing to give up our sin. We can't come in a way that says, well, God doesn't really care about my sin. He tolerates it. No, God loves you too much to let us stay as we are. He loves us too much to let us stay as we are. He wants to change us. Are you a mess but hunger and thirst to be whole, to be different? Perfect. That's exactly how God wants you to come. Come not because you are good, but come so he can make you good. And if you're learning to love God, you more and more will hunger and thirst for righteousness and you more and more will hate sin in yourself and in the world. I get concerned because I think we have a modern gospel today that minimizes sin, that minimizes the holiness of God we just sang about, that minimizes his desire for holiness. I I see People thinking God tolerates sin. I've had, I don't know how many people come and say to me, I know this is wrong, but God will forgive me. Frankly, if that's your attitude, I'm afraid you're destined for hell. At least you're walking that direction. God does not tolerate sin. He comes and cleanses us. He's a consuming fire that burns away the dross and the sin in us. We don't have to be pure before we come to him, but if we come to him, he will purify us. So he wants us to come repentant, admitting our sin. Like Isaiah came to God and saw him in the, back in chapter 6, remember, where it says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what was Isaiah's response? Woe is me! <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, if Isaiah had gone on to the rest of his body, he could have enumerated everything. <laughs> he didn't get past his lips. I'm a mess. And God forgave him, and he experienced the forgiveness of God. That's all God wants, is to come repentant and then enjoy his forgiveness and the free pardon he offers us. 
We are to come thirsty. We are to come listening. We are to come repentant. And fourth, we are to come trusting. Trusting. Let me read verses 8 through 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. How can we understand this amazing free pardon of grace that we can come into his presence? It's not like the world treats us. No, the world, you have to come with an application and you have to get your act together and you better clean yourself up. You better earn the grades. But God says, no, just come as the mess that you are and receive life as a gift. I'll fill your empty soul. But we go, wait, uh, that doesn't make sense. Exactly, God says. <laughs> because his grace is not human. It's godly. Grace is a godly response, not a human response. God says, I offer grace freely. All you have to do is admit you're a thirsty sinner, so come. And so he, he encourages us to trust in what he says. My thoughts are not your thoughts. You're not going to figure it all out. It's not going to make sense to you because it's not the human way to live. So you have a choice at that point. Will you trust in your understanding? I'm not going to trust God till I figure it all out, till it makes sense to me. Or are you going to say, he died for me. I can trust him and his love, even if it doesn't make sense to me. See, too often we make our own understanding our idol. Ever since the Enlightenment, man has put so much stock in his own rational thinking. We depend on that so much. It's become an idol to us. And so we won't trust God till we understand. But he says, my ways are not your ways. We see such a tiny part of reality, minuscule part. And God sees the whole thing from beginning to end. He sees it all. He knows us intimately better than we know ourselves. And he says, trust me. I love you. Trust me, even if it doesn't make sense to you. So our choice becomes this. Will we hang on to our own understanding and not trust God till we figure it out? Or will we trust in his word, which he says will never return void? It will always, like the rain, produce life and fruit in our lives if we will begin to trust him. We believe in the power of the word. It brings fruit and life. That's why we here at Cole are so committed to teaching through the Bible, not just Sunday mornings, but in all our ministries in various ways, because we believe the word has power and brings life. It always accomplishes his will. So he says, come, but come trusting in me, not in your understanding. And then finally, come expectant. Come expectant. The end of the chapter, verse 12 and 13, says this. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. What a choir that will be, huh? <laughs> and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Talk about a rhythm section. 
all the trees of the field. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briars shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I think he says, come expectant. Come expecting God to bring life. Come expecting God to show up. Expect to find joy in his presence. Expect that he will be there. And he and that he will begin on earth to fill your thirsty soul as you make room and space in your life to listen to him and for him to come and fill your heart. And wait expectantly for that time when he will recreate creation, when the new creation will come and all will finally be in harmony and all will finally and fully be well, all of creation, singing the creation and recreation song with us. Expect that to come. When Jesus died, the door to God's presence was thrown wide open. He says, come, 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 over and over again in this passage. But we still have to come. We have to make the choice to come, to walk through that door. And how does he want us to come? Well, you fill out your application in triplicate. You send your check. And you make sure you have all your good works lined out if you're going to come into his presence. No, that's not it, is it? He says, come thirsty. (laughs) Admit you're needy and your heart is aching for more of him. Come listening. Make space in your life for him so that he can come and begin to fill it. Come repentant, willing to give up those things you've hung on to that have kept you from him to give up your sin. Come trusting in his word above your own understanding and really believe in him, trust in him, and come expectant. Expecting that if you make room in your life for God, he will show up. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful, encouraging chapter this is that you want us to just come. Come as thirsty, struggling, messed up sinners. May we be people who learn to enjoy our access to you in a way that can fill our soul and bring joy and glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.